Hi there, my name is Ushin Lunny, and this is Audio Talks, presented to you by Harman. And this episode, we're going to be kicking off series three of the podcast with some leading lights of the overlap between music and technology and have a look at democratizing the music business. It's a real honor to welcome our three VIP guests today, Scott Cohen, who is the Chief Innovation Officer for Recorded Music at Warner Music Group. Welcome, Scott. Hi, how are you? Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Chris Cook, editor, journalist, media entrepreneur, and managing director of 3CM Unlimited. Welcome, Chris. Hello there. And last but not least, Oscar Herglund, the co-founder and CEO of Music Sync startup Epidemic Sound. Welcome, Oscar. Hey, thank you for having me. So I'd like to start the show with one of my favorite quotes. The music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. And there's also a negative side. So those are the immortal (laughs) words of the great Hunter S. Thompson, who kind of alludes to a perception that people have of the music business as being unfair, as being difficult to make a living from, and that pretty much being the status quo. And in parallel to this historical perception of the music business, uh, we also have news that maybe mirrors some of the GameStop news from the world of trading as well, that music companies are launching new services with the aim of being more user-centric, particularly in terms of the royalties they pay out to the artists. In fact, this week, SoundCloud announced they were going to be the first music app with a fan-powered artist payment model. And Tim Ingham wrote on Music Business Worldwide, in an industry-first move, SoundCloud is introducing what it calls fan-powered royalties, its own branding of the user-centric model. So, it sort of points to this idea that the traditional music industry isn't that fair. I mean, what say all of you about the SoundCloud news and about whether the music business is working for the majority of recording artists? Who'd like to jump in on that broad topic there? Is it fair? It's a tough question to ask because go back into the history of the music business. How many artists wanted to be Frank Sinatra or Elvis or the Beatles or Aretha Franklin or David Bowie or Prince or Metallica or Ed Sheeran, you know, it's not so easy to be that, those special artists, they don't come along by the millions. They're they're very few. And when you find that talent, it takes some doing to, to make them the, the superstars that they are, that, that I just reeled off, you know, names from the last 60 years and you knew every one of them and and I presume everyone listening knows every one of them you need a structure that is provided by a part of the system the record companies that actually do that that can take that talent and bring it to the world and make them you know impossible to ignore to take that talent and help shape their careers It's easier than ever for artists to create music, to record it, to distribute it, to reach audiences, but it's still no easier to become one of those global superstars. And I think if anything, it's harder than ever. And having those structures in place are quite amazing. And there is that trade-off, you know, if you want to be that, then you have to work with other people, but that's no different than the sports world. You know, if you want to be a superstar athlete at any sport, if you're the greatest football player or tennis player or the greatest skier, you don't do it by yourself. Matter of fact, you don't say, oh, well, now I'm, I'm, I'm really good. I don't need a coach anymore. You have more people on your team. You have coaches and, you know, fitness coaches and dietitians and, you know, sleep coaches now and psychologists. And you have this massive team that you can't do it by yourself. Yeah, right. And, and Chris, you've got a, a perspective as a journalist, as an educator, as uh, the writer of a book I'm holding in my hand at the moment, Dissecting the Digital Dollar, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, how do you see this kind of tension between the world of democratized content creation and, you know, Instagram and photographic sharing and all this kind of empowerment of the the creatives and this quote unquote legacy of these structures that have been making the music stars that we have all grown up with and kind of follow today. Yeah. I mean, as Scott said, what is brilliant about being a music maker or any content creator in 2021 
is that many of the barriers to entry of getting your music, your songwriting, your recordings to a potential audience have gone. Mm. And I think, you know, it's on one level, there has never been a greater time to be an aspiring musician. There's never been a greater time to being a songwriter, recording artist with those ambitions because pre-digital, there were lots of gatekeepers. There were lots of barriers. And often meeting those gatekeepers, getting over those hurdles, it was kind of luck. Some people would argue that the truly great talents like the ones Scott mentioned were always going to make it. And we can debate on an academic level whether or not that's true. Mm. But for a lot of artists, you didn't meet the right person. You didn't live in the right place. And therefore, however good your music was, you were not going to find an audience. And obviously, what the digital world has done is it's removed many of those barriers. So, so we're now in an age where, well, you mentioned SoundCloud. So I can create music on my laptop if I have the talent and the right software. I can get it onto SoundCloud. I have global distribution immediately. Then I stick it up on YouTube and I create some visual stuff. Then I discover a DIY distributor, whether that's TuneCore or CD Baby or DistroKid or Ditto. There's so many to choose from now. And within 24 hours, my music is sitting alongside the biggest superstars of today and history. And then, yeah, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, whatever, I have those platforms out there. So it's the greatest time to be a creator. It's also the worst time to be a creator because every single person who wants to be a musician, every single person who wants to be a journalist, every single person who wants to be a filmmaker, likewise has access to those tools. So mm. never at any point in human history have this many people been seriously trying to make a go of being a musician or a creator or whatever. So the competition is fierce. Um, mm. And I think if you look at it from the perspective of an artist, a, I mean, what was the stat we saw last week from Daniel Eck at Spotify? 60,000 tracks a day. Now, even if some of that is podcast content, that is a phenomenal amount of music going live every single day onto Spotify and all the other platforms. So as an artist, that is what you're competing with, except 70 years of archive is also sitting on those platforms accessible. <laughs> yes. So you're competing with all of that too. Plus you're not just competing with other musicians. You know, you're competing for the attention and the excitement of people who are actually watching YouTube creators or TikTok influencers or Twitch gamers. You know, there's all these new strands of, of the creative industries who are competing for that time. So it's both the best time and the worst time to be a creator, which comes back to Scott's point. What do you need? Well, what you need is a team. And at CMU, we call our education wing CMU DIY. But well, we came up with a cliche because someone pointed out that was a stupid thing to call our education strand because <laughs> the one thing we say throughout is, you cannot do this alone. So the cliche we came up with is DIY doesn't mean do it yourself. It means direct it yourself. Nice. You still need a team. The question is, who do you need on your team and what are you going to do with them? And there's a lot more flexibility in terms of how you structure that team than there was 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. And as you were talking about this, you know, the, the fact that the new technology is empowering people, it's democratizing. In theory, your track can sit beside that of Frank Sinatra on Spotify, like super quickly. But there is also some disruption coming up from the tech challengers and folks who are sort of using this new digital world we live in to launch competitive services or complementary services. Now, maybe I, I'm not sure if this is a, an accurate parallel, but it makes me think of the world of fintech, where you've got the established banks and then you've got the challenger banks who are maybe focusing on a smaller subset, but doing it a bit more cost effectively than some of the legacy institutions. Oscar, talk to us a bit about your viewpoint on the world of digital music as it is in 2021. You have the, the legacy players, the startups, the challengers, and it'd be great to hear how Epidemic Sound fits into this. Yeah, um, I would be happy to comment on that. But I think first of what strikes me when I take a step back and when I listen to Scott and to Chris is how much we're aligned and I think how much we agree. I completely subscribe to the picture that there's never been a worse time, but obviously never been a better time also. And I completely agree with Scott to the importance of teams. I think what unites both Chris and Scott and myself is the importance of relationships I think that as Scott alluded to, the relationships with the labels is just more important than ever. And technology has uh, opened up for so many more avenues to discover and explore and fortify that relationship. But I would argue that's just one side of the coin because this coin has multiple sides, not just two, because we have labels on the one side. Uh, we alluded to platforms previously. I think we've already mentioned SoundCloud and Spotify, just to name a few. Uh, we're leaning 
towards a different group of individuals and other relationships, which uh, are much more the content creators, which brings us into a subject that Chris just touched upon, which is the whole crossover. So the attention economy. And I think what's a wonderfully sort of situated right in front of all of us is this great opportunity to see music and everything come together as we fight for attention, not just within the sort of the greats that, that Scott alluded to, but to Chris' point with YouTube creators and we're doing a vlog and uh, we're creating content on multiple different platforms. So sort of just acknowledging that there aren't just as historically maybe were the case, a few relationships that you could lean into, but there are multiple ones with other content creators. Technology has opened up for that collaboration with people within your team who could help you uh, from a label perspective, from a publisher perspective. Platforms can help you. And also the opposite, content creators can also help and make you. So I think step number one, just stop there and allow others to chime in because I think that my first observation is that there's so much more that unites us rather than sort of there's an encumbrant and a challenger. Yeah, I, I think, you know, all of us in the, in the modern music business embrace technology. We, we don't look at it as disruption, or at least I don't look at it as disruption. I look at it as making things better, whether it's better for people that want to create content, better for the people that want to listen to it, better for the people that want to engage in it. So I wouldn't look at TikTok or iTunes back in the day or Spotify or or any of this that allows this ecosystem to thrive as disruptive at all. I think this is really contributing to a better ecosystem. I think the issue that sometimes people feel in this environment is that it can be overwhelming and it can be challenging. And oftentimes they blame the new environment and the technology for their inability to maybe make as much money as they would think they would make. But, you know, as Chris pointed out, with 60,000 new tracks being uploaded every day, plus the entire history of recorded music... That's pretty stiff competition. And, you know, going back to my, my sports analogies, lots of people play sports, football, they go skiing. They don't necessarily think they're going to earn a living at it. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. They're spending a fortune on their ski holidays and their gear. And it's a bit like that in music, that you should be doing it because of the passion of it, because you enjoy it and creating and everything is there. And if you are one of those extraordinary talents that gets through the clutter and, and passes through, then it's actually an amazing business. And if you're worried about money, there's a ton of money in it. If that's your, you know, one of the, the problems that people say that they're not making money. And, and one last piece on that, I think part of it is because in today's world, a lot of people don't understand these larger numbers, a million streams. Mm. They think it's like putting a million people in venues, you know, like selling out hundreds of stadiums. So they think it's like a million CD sales, but really it's like getting played on a small radio station once. You have such an interesting background in terms of your career throughout music and your creation of The Orchard with Richard Goddard uh, as you bought it to the labels back in the day, early doors, digital innovators. It was seen as quite disruptive and a lot of the labels were slow to see the potential that yourself and Richard could see. To be fair, so we started the company The Orchard in 1997. It was the first ever digital distribution of music. Yeah, But it was so early on that we, we were definitely not seen as a disruptor because we didn't disrupt anything. Nobody, I mean, what was to disrupt in 1997? Um, I'll tell you why, because, you know, as a distributor, one of our, one of our little problems we had was there was nobody to distribute to. <laughs> it was because there were no such things as digital download stores. <laughs> there was no streaming platform. So we, we had some issues. We were definitely not a, disruptor early on, but later, mm. I think maybe. Yeah, you were absolutely ahead of the curve, to put it mildly there. The other distinction I would make is artists who have arrived in the last few years to a streaming, social, data-driven world. And, and from the start, that was part of being an artist. And they did that from the very go. You know, the first time they uploaded a track to whichever distributor they worked with, 
you know, the next day they were looking at the data that was coming down. They were looking at what was happening on, on Instagram. They were looking, and, and so they have been able to grow businesses. And then as things gain momentum, they get a manager on board and then they start working with a bigger distributor and then a label and a publisher. And they've been able to build businesses for this era. Now, hmm. many, many artists who've tried that haven't succeeded because of all that competition we talked about earlier. But those hmm. artists who have broken through, and I think here in the UK, we all know that certain grime artists have had significant success in recent years. And, and in some ways, that was because if you go back 10, 15 years, the conventional music industry in the UK didn't want to work with those artists because they didn't understand the music. Yeah. And so those artists and the entrepreneurs within their group were like, well, screw the industry. Everything's shifting over to, well, where were we at that point? BBM. And then uh, after that, Instagram, and then after that, Snapchat, and then after that, TikTok. And they were like, well, we can do this ourselves. And so they, they did. And then it suddenly turned out that they were 10 years ahead of everyone else. Because then when the rest of the industry were like, oh, my God, we're in a Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram age, wow, these artists can already do it. So for those artists, this is the most exciting time. Having said that, you then have the legacy infrastructure. You have the songwriters and the producers and the heritage artists who are also really essential parts of the wider business who are used to the way things used to work. And they have systems in place, they have deals in place, they've structured their rights, we have collecting societies set up a certain way. And I always think, as a journalist, I sort of sit in the middle and always play devil's advocate. So the day I have industry in the room, and I've got some startups over here, then I'm like, hey, industry, you're mad, you need to change this and change this and get rid of those deals and shut down that because there's a startup opportunity over here. But when I have a room full of startups, I say, okay, guys, this is why your business isn't going to work. Because what you don't understand is that there's this <laughs> complication here, and there's this relationship here, and there's these rights here. And I suppose it's trying to find that happy medium where you can say to the startups, it's not quite as simple as you think. We can't just pull all down all the legacy infrastructure. Some of it we need. Some of it needs to stay. So we can't just blow it all up. But then turning to the industry and saying, ah, but, you know, this thing that you do because we've always done it is really stupid. <laughs> and we need to stop doing that. And we need to, there's a bit of data over here. There's a bit of technology over here. I mean, songwriters in particular, I mean, if you've been following the streaming inquiry in the UK Parliament, songwriters keep saying that they in particular are not seeing the benefits from streaming, by which we mean songwriters who are not also artists, songwriters who are writing songs for other people. Now, mm. I think behind the scenes, there's some songwriters who are actually doing very well out of streaming. But even if we ignore that, there are plenty of songwriters I know who are good songwriters, they work on successful songs, and their managers are good, credible managers, and they are saying it's not working. And, mm. and my comeback to that is, well, okay, maybe part of it is the way the money gets shared out. That's what the focus of the debate has been on. But I am also convinced that there's some data issues and there's some technology issues and there's some audio ID issues mm -hmm. that is leaving money on the table. I think we're leaving as much money on the table for songwriters as we're taking off the table. And so I think, yes, there may be a debate about what do we do with legacy deals? What do we do with the way the money gets shared out? All of that. But mm. over here, there is some technology and some data and some audio ID that if we embrace it in the next five years... I genuinely think there's a billion dollars sitting on the table somewhere that, that songwriters are just not getting, and technology will unlock that money. Are you suggesting we get that money and we share it amongst ourselves? Is that what you're suggesting? You can find this billion dollars. No, Chris. And then we pass it on to the songwriters. Yes, of course. And technology is working on, you know, getting rid of some of those inefficiencies. It's interesting. For the first part of what you were saying, you know, it's this notion that the ideas are often quite revolutionary, but the change is quite evolutionary, that you really need to go through the steps. You know, for anyone that says the music industry was slow to the internet, imagine if they went 100% digital in 1999, when... There were no MP3 players. There was no broadband. Most homes didn't have an internet connection. You couldn't, you couldn't play digital music in your automobile. Like it would have been ludicrous to flip at that point. So there is a timing issue with all of that. And you have to get it right. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not, I have a startup and I'm going to disrupt the whole music industry. It's it, what I always find better is I have a startup with a great idea. And how do we, begin to change things and then 
10 years later, you are in place, but it, nothing happens overnight like they think, including becoming an overnight success in music. You know, how many years does it take to become an overnight success? Indeed. And, uh, you know, you're all kind of touching around this theme of democratizing the music industry. And, you know, for all that, Chris, as you kind of personified there, which was amazing, you know, you can read one article that says, okay, let's just tear down the statues and another article that says, okay, you know, hold your horses here. Let's not lose our minds over this. Are there any examples of achieving a happy medium between this, this tension between the kind of disruptive startups or the, the smaller companies and the legacy systems that we think are benefiting everyone. What kind of tech examples are helping to shine a light on how we might reach a bit more of an equitable playing field? Well, I mean, I say, you know, one obvious technology which is moving us in the right direction when it comes to getting people paid and the right people paid is audio recognition or you know, music recognition technology, whatever we want to call it. And obviously, that's not new. I mean, how long has Shazam been around? I mean, it's been around a very long time. YouTube's Content ID then obviously became a a, a very important form of that technology. But I I feel behind the scenes, that technology is evolving rapidly. And so originally, we could recognize a commercially leased recording, providing someone had remembered to put a copy of that recording into a database. And that was the original audio ID. Then DJs start mixing it and slowing it down and speeding it up and slicing it. So audio ID gets a bit cleverer and we can start to to recognize that. Then we're in a noisy room and there's other things going on. So the audio ID gets cleverer and we can still recognize it. Then we start getting samples. Can we recognize samples? What about performances? Well, we're not using the recording. We're, We're performing a song. Now, recognizing songs is a lot harder than recognizing recordings. But behind the scenes, very clever people sometimes in-house at Spotify and Google, et cetera, sometimes in startups, or this technology is leaping. And then behind the scenes, just machine learning in general. I mean, now we're beyond my knowledge, but machine learning, AI in general is leaping. And so yeah. there are those technologies out there, which we're going to get. I mean, I, I think, you know, within 10 years time, we're going to get to a point where music gets played in a pub, club, bar, cafe, or on any platform in the world, we will be able to identify what song and what recording has been played. Then it's a political thing of getting the industry to embrace it. I mean, coming back to Scott's point, I mean, it's, it is timing because some people would say, oh, PRS and PPL should have a little black box in every single venue in the UK listening to the music. And at the moment, they do have some boxes in some club venues, but that's about it. But same thing, if we'd spent money on those boxes in 2005, they would have cost an absolute fortune and would already be redundant. 2015, probably, they would have been absolutely and still we're redundant. So it's getting the timing right. But I think the time is going to be in the next 10 years. So then it is, Mm. there are some people in the industry who either actually have a vested interest in the old model, or who are just resistant and suspicious of the change. And Mm. I mean, there have been a lot of startups that have come to the market making very bold promises that were untrue. So, you know, you're right to be a little bit suspicious of a startup when they arrive telling you that they and they alone are going to save the music industry. I, mean, I think Scott's talked about that before. How many times have people been here to save the music industry? Um, but there is embracing that technology. And then there will be a little bit of politics behind the scene of making sure that those people who either have a vested interest in the old ways or who are suspicious of the new ways is preferably to get them on board. And if not, maybe they need to get out of the way. Mm. Interesting. Democratization is about politics. Who would have thought? Oscar, what say you? Yeah, um, I think that you bring up a, a, a very good point, uh, Chris, um, in the sense that it's a little bit problematic because I think that a lot of people would subscribe to your view that technology is making a lot of progress right now and that that's the unlock for seeing significant change, not just for some, but for all. Then sort of digging into your arguments, I'd say that sort of that's not what you are saying because it doesn't really come down to technology. I, I've always been struck. I think it's hilarious that for 10 years now, I've been able to call anyone in the world and my phone bill can break down exactly who I spoke to, what time across what net, according to what roaming charge, what phone, and everything is reportable. Yet here we are saying in 2021, oh, it's amazing. We might be able to identify a track at some point soon. <laughs> It's it's bizarre, if you ask me. So the technology exists. So that's not ex- what's at the core of this issue. It's much more to your point, Chris, because it's about, um, I would argue, aligning incentives and sort of understanding people's actual motives. So what you say is one thing, what you do is something else. So these are the things that need to be debated and spoken about. Mm. And those discussions are hard. 
And I would argue that one of the ways of getting to that point is rallying around big ideas. I don't think we do that enough. That's one of my learnings from the last 12 years that I see startups come and go. I see empires build and fall, some sustain, but there aren't enough big ideas. And so I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think that's one of the things we've got a lot of stuff wrong at Epidemic, but fortunately we've got a lot of stuff right. And one of the things that we're passionate about is that we want to soundtrack the internet. That's our big idea. We think the internet is our generation's most incredible contribution to future generations. I dream about talking to my grandkids and when they look at me deep in the eye and they say, granddad, your generation invented the internet, right? It's going to be a big ass smile on my face and I'm going to go, yep. And they're going to say, please tell me that you contributed in some small way, shape or form. And I'm going to go, hell yes. I was a small part of a company called Epidemic and we soundtracked the internet. We brought emotion and feeling to our generation's biggest collective achievement. I think we need ideas that excite people. We can't just, we can do incremental changes, but if we only focus on 5% better, 2% better, or so there might be a change around the corner, that doesn't push the needle in a big way. I think we need bigger ideas in general. I would, and I would definitely agree that with the various different challenges we have as an industry, whether they are getting people paid or marketing or whatever, um, yeah, some of those are the technology is still evolving and catching up. And once we have the right technology, we need to address the politics. But I would totally agree with some of these challenges. When it comes to metadata for songs, when it comes for matching recordings to songs, when it comes to knowing who wrote a song, who owns the copyright, that's a big data challenge that could have been solved years ago. And that is, we're at the point that that's entirely a well, I don't even know if it's a political thing or if it's a cultural thing. It's all of it. Mm. But the music industry has increasingly become a data business because every business has basically become a data business, hasn't it? Sure. So, you know, music distribution, it's basically a data business. That doesn't allow you to abdicate from feelings and from, from big ideas. I mean, data is going to supercharge and help educate us, but it's never going to be the solution. Data is going to help us, but we need to have the conviction, the ideas to follow through and to build stuff using data. Yeah. And if we have, I mean, God, this is so geeky, but if we have metadata issues of matching songs to songwriters and artists and technology gaps, you know, some of this, if we have big ideas can be solved. Like, first of all, when we're talking about this many artists making this much music, 60,000 new tracks a day, they actually don't understand all of the things that we would know because we're in the business, like what's the difference between a master right and a publishing right and all these splits. And if we could find a way to capture that upstream at the time of creation, and then that populated all the downstream systems, that would help. But when you have people uploading songs and they haven't entered any of the what we would consider the correct metadata, it, it is an enormous problem that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think there's ways of, of solving it with some of the technology we have now. You said audio recognition, but I think that pairs nicely with all things blockchain and where we're headed. And I've been banging on about blockchain for many years. And it's only recently everyone's, you know, learning about NFTs and getting super excited. Like, well, what the fuck have I been talking about for a decade? Pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but partly I think that comes back to Scott's original point about who do you need on your team? Hmm. I often say with new artists, actually you begin with collaborators before business partners. So, so you're the first people you're going to work with. They're not business partners. You're not going to do a deal with them. They're other creative people who you collaborate with, and whether that's on the actual music making process or whatever. And then slowly but surely you start to get more traditional music industry business partners involved. But there's an element of saying, you know, if you're an artist, a songwriter, etc., you know, Yes, you like hanging out with other creative people. Of course you do, because you're a very creative people. You like hanging out with people whose passion is musical composition and performance. But where's the data geek on your team? Where is the people on your team who their passion is, is the spreadsheet lining up and the data being in? Because mm. those people exist. And I think it's, again, again, it's having the right people on your team. And then coming back to Oscar's point, during COVID, I think we've started to see a growth in director fam, which is another thing that's been sitting around for 20 years not properly <laughs> exploited by many people. Um, and so I've been doing lots of digging into the different approaches to direct a fan. And that's where not just looking at music as music, 
what are the YouTube creators doing in that space? What are the Twitch gamers doing in that space? What are the podcasters doing in that space? Because ultimately, they're all in the same business, mm. which is exciting people with great content and then figuring out how to make some money out of that excitement. They're all in the, in the business of telling great stories, if you yeah. ask me, Chris. That's what they are. They're storytellers. Different but what I think is interesting about Oscar's business is that, in, in essence, you, you have that you've connected the creators happening originally on YouTube and all the other platforms. You understand what their drive is and what their needs are. And you understand what musicians are. And it's, it's partly about connecting those communities and finding ways that then both sides win. It's interesting that you also bring up Chris around direct to consumer sales, because I think the music industry, yeah, it's been kicking around forever. Um, but you know, flip to another industry like, you know, filmmaking with Disney. So Disney puts out a film like Frozen, you know, the, the animated uh, film. And it, it becomes a tremendous success. But if Disney, unlike the music business, didn't congratulate itself on the wild success of the film, it was just the beginning of launching over 3,000 individual products that they could sell to consumers around the, the frozen film. We get a billion streams and we're, we're high-fiving each other. That should be, now the real work goes. Now we kick it in. And I think we haven't dialed it in quite right yet, but I think you're going to see that ratchet up over the next coming years. And again, with blockchain being a key element of it, I mean, there'll be a bit of a gold rush period now, and then it'll feel like it dropped, and then it'll come back and take off at a nice, normal trajectory. And I think that's a huge opportunity that's untapped. I'm the same as millions of people around the world now who've been um, in lockdown and watching Queen's Gambit. And so there's this chess reference. I'm terrible at playing chess, but I love this reference. The picture in my mind is as if, if you're setting yourself to play a game of chess, you obviously don't want to play somebody who has a diverse set of different chess pawns and you yourself only have bishops or you only have a certain kind of pawn that they're all exactly the same. And I think that what both Scott and Chris are alluding to is the importance of having diverse teams around you. In the Disney example, you need to have a multitude of different assets and skills and know-how uh, in order to release 3,000 other products on top of a massive product in itself. And Chris, to your point, exactly the same. You need different people who are triggered on different parts of the value chain and the ecosystem. And I think what's becoming more and more obvious now that sort of that insight is, is hitting more and more companies. And, and I think the inflection points and the opportunities to cooperate more along those lines are ever increasing. So I think that for me, that's something that I've seen change quite a lot now. I'd maybe call it the level of respect because there used to be a hierarchy as in sort of, I do the finer arts, you do the less finer arts, this is creative, that's easy. I think about IP and I look at what we're trying to do at Epidemic. I see as we have two superpowers. We have technological IP and we have music IP. But guess what? They're both IP and there is no hierarchy. There's, there's a symbiosis. If you don't have like super creative engineers and really structured musicians, you can make magic. But the exact opposite is true as well. If you don't have super creative music, sort of, and, and they sort of intertwine. And I think the people are more embracing that sort of a different can be valuable and there's beauty in sort of us coming together. I think that change I see quite a bit. And I think that is encouraging sort of the merging and the blurring of the lines. Heck, it's even in our tagline. We're soundtracking the internet. We don't see ourselves as music. We're a part of YouTubers, a part of Twitch stories, a part of everyone trying to sort of garner and bring a story to life, we want to try and play a role across a ton of different things and at the same time stay focused. And you hear just how difficult that is. That's amazing, Oscar. And it kind of points to how the music industry is set up, that it doesn't have to compete with anything else because it becomes embedded in everything else. And it always has been. You know, way before digital music, you could go for a, a jog with your Walkman with a cassette. You could get in your car and listen to music while you're driving. As a matter of fact, what better thing is there to do? Uh, well, now I know people like to text while they drive, but what better <laughs> thing is there to do than listening to loud music while you're driving, while you're doing almost anything, while you're eating dinner, while you're playing a game? I mean, music just makes everything that much better. Um, and so... Mm -hmm. 
we're in the fortunate position that we're not competing for the attention economy, including if you go, well, what if people are on Netflix? Yeah. Netflix is loaded with music. <laughs> like it is, it is licensed into every television show ever. There's nothing where there's no music. And some of it is actual songs synced into it. Some of it is people creating uh, music for the, for the show itself. Like it doesn't matter. It permeates everything we do. And it couldn't be a better time to be in music because of that, because we're never competing. We're never competing. Fantastic. Yeah, there's a, a certain element of democratization baked into music as a concept and the fact that everybody loves it. Uh, Harmon did a survey last year and they found that eight out of 10 people said they couldn't live without music. And I was uh, chatting about this with uh, Shane from uh, Sound Diplomacy and Reverend Moose from um, Save Our Stages. And, uh, you know, we were all mystified as to who those two out of 10 people <laughs> were that can live without music. It just doesn't compute. It's it's totally primal. Uh, but coming back to this theory of technology, democratizing stuff like music, uh, we have that parallel with GameStop and the trading platforms that democratized people's ability to buy into shares like GameStop. Now, those platforms were largely supplied for free. So folks can day trade. And to be fair, most of them do statistically lose money. But the business of the trading platform isn't actually the trade so much. It's the data on what these day traders are doing and they sell that to the hedge funds, etc. Are there any parallels in the world of music where innovative new platforms are coming up, but it's it's not so much about the transactions that are happening between people or direct to consumer. It's about the data that's being exposed here. I know that Spotify has revolutionized music distribution and marketing campaigns by giving folks access to data. What kind of exciting data models do we think are going to help democratize music and help drive innovation in the industry? It's funny because I actually think that is what's happening now. And I think the big opportunity is to go in the exact opposite direction. Like <laughs> if I'm paying you you know, a 10 or a month, then stay the f out of my business. I don't need you to know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's none of your business. And, if, and, 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 and I think we may see the pendulum swing the other way to say, yeah. you know, data is not for sale. My data is not for sale because, because essentially what we're doing is we're punishing the people that contribute most to platforms. You know, the more I use Facebook, the more I'm punished by them selling my advertising and, and, and interrupting my interactions. So I think we could see the pendulum swing the other way and that maybe I'm rewarded for contributing to networks. The more I'm leaning in and doing things, the more I'm rewarded and not punished and that my information, my data is mine. And if I want to share it, um, you share it with me. You know, again, a, another kind of blockchain notion. My point is, why are you paying Facebook if you want to reach me? Pay me. I'm not asking you to spend more, more money. I'm saying that my data is my data. If you want to reach me and I choose to, then you're not interrupting me then you can pay. And there's a different mm -hmm. kind of ecosystem that can be built. I am not a believer in the buying and selling of third-party data. But with that said, I'm not I'm against data. I, I like having data-led, data-informed decision-making and using data for those things, but not to target people. If you've been tuning into these um, hearings in Parliament about the economics of streaming, I thought obviously the most recent one had a representative of Spotify and Apple and Amazon. And one of the conversations was you know, streaming services competing with free, as they say. And obviously yeah. Spotify has its free version and its paid for version for very sensible reasons. I mean, whether or not you agree with that model, it's a very sensible model. And hey, look, it worked. <laughs> Every time Spotify entered a market, it signed up way more people than everybody else. But obviously Apple doesn't have that model. It doesn't have the free model. It doesn't need to because they've already got all of those iPhone users and customers and iTunes customers. But I thought what was really interesting is in the past, I think when Apple were talking about the, the pay versus free and should there be a free version, Apple would probably have said there shouldn't be a free version because it doesn't add up economically. And then they would have thrown in, it's not Apple we're worried about. We're worried about the artist. We don't want the artist to have to take a hit on free 
in order for us to sign up. That's what Apple would have said. Whereas Hmm. in the most recent select committee hearing, what Apple's rep said is, an advertising model does not fulfill our privacy commitments. Our passion is our users' privacy. And if we go to a free model and we start selling advertising, and obviously that's part of Apple's current beef with Facebook on on, on this whole issue. So I think Apple are going to become the champions of, we charge you a bit more for our devices on our software and our content, but we're not going to sell your data. Whereas obviously the Google Facebook model, they are data marketing businesses. That that is what those companies are. So I think there's going to be a tension. And I think from a music perspective, it's interesting because on one level, we don't like the fact that Facebook controls our fan base. We don't like the fact that we help Facebook build their audience and now they charge us to reach that audience. But at the same time, when I'm doing my music marketing webinars, I'm telling people about the power of the pixel and how they should mm-hmm. be building below-line audiences and using that data and targeting. So, so, And it is a very powerful marketing tool. And if you're a label, it's even more powerful because you've got the data across your roster. And I think that's something that labels haven't talked about enough is one of the things that labels are bringing to the table is all that data is so much more valuable when you've got 30 artists all in the same scene than when you've got one artist. So yeah, I think the whole data thing is interesting. And I think the Apple v. Facebook war that is already underway and the impact it may or may not have on the music industry, well, almost certainly will have on the music industry, will be really interesting to, to see it unfold. I can just offer up one alternative perspective when it comes to data. And I think that What's typically lacking is the situation where data gets funneled back to the people, to your point, Scott, to the people who actually provide the data, as opposed to someone, a third party who's looking to profiteer from the data. And so we're trying to do that in the following way, that we're in a position now where we get to soundtrack tens of millions of YouTubers every single day that generate billions of impressions. And what we do is we have a very good sense of what the internet sounds like. In real time, we can see that our music soundtracks a huge part of the video streaming platforms out there. And what we do is we then funnel that data back to the music creators who provide us with music and we help them and we encourage them to say, look, this is currently what's trending. This is what uh, YouTubers are using within these categories. This is what kite surfers are doing. These are the tracks that they're liking. This is what they're not liking. If you produce more of this, odds are that you're going to have a much better ROI on your investment of time and sort of what kind of royalties that can generate than if you sort of go on a whim and do something else. So I do think that in the name of democratization, there is a clear argument that data can and should be used very much to empower people, not just profiteer, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm just offering a different sort of way of viewing how data can be used to, in this case, supercharge musicians, inform them and, and give them more autonomy and a greater sort of likelihood to succeed. See that I agree with the data led data driven part of it versus the exploitative part of people harvesting yep. people's data and what they can potentially do with that data. Hmm. I'm I'm all for using data, I'm all for rewarding the people that supply the data as in the individuals because I'm not rewarded from any service currently when I provide my data. They profit off of it. And, you know, it's very funny because if we're talking about our artists getting their fair share, I would extend that out to people. Because if you're looking at the DSP model, like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Google, Deezer, you know, they're paying out 75, 80% of their revenue to the music industry. But is Facebook, Google, and the rest paying out 75 to 80% of the revenue that they get to the people that are creating the content that they're monetizing, the data that they're monetizing? So, you know, maybe we've already solved it for the artist community and we need to think about the wider world. Amazing. Democratization goes beyond the artists. It goes to all players in the ecosystem. And it does seem like we're moving from this world of, you know, rigid boundaries and legacy and, uh, you know, disruptive startups. We're moving to this place where the, the music industry is about overlapping ecosystems and cooperation and working together and data-driven decisions across different platforms, all that kind of good stuff. I'm curious to see what your take is on what success looks like in 2021 for music creators and what kind of elements should they be looking out for and what kind of advice you would have for anybody listening. And they're just keen to kind of seize the moment to uh, share their music with the world. What new things, what democratizing trends should they be aware of? Who'd like to jump in there? 
Well, I would just say the annoying answer to what does success look like is it depends. Because um, <laughs> it depends yes. what you want. You know, yes. what is it that you're setting out to achieve? I mean, we have a project called Pathways into Music, where we're basically mapping the careers of what we call frontline artists. So yeah. sort of the main artists. And uh, our basic pathway is basically, we started with a 10-step plan from hobbyist to headliner. So you imagine somebody in their bedroom playing around with Garage Band at step one, and then Drake and Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran all, all at step 10. And there's 10 steps between the two. And then the feedback we immediately got was that they felt that we were suggesting that if you didn't get to step 10, you hadn't succeeded. And then we had to say, okay, yeah, we've screwed up there. We've not communicated this right. We are not saying that success is step 10. And, and then it's like, well, if, if success is having a sustainable career around music, then probably on our plan, step five, step six is where that becomes a reality. But then what does that mean? Does that mean you're just about getting by? Or does it mean that you have lots of money? Oh, then, you know, is, is it creatively your ambition? Or is it that you want to be a superstar? Do you want to be a global rock star? And I suppose, depending on what the answers to those questions are, then how we're defining success would be, would be totally different. Yeah, it, it's not so different than the business world, where, you know, there's a real push now to every business that opens has to be scalable, has to be a potential unicorn that's going to transform the entire planet. But it's okay to have those moments, those Googles, Apple, (laughs) Amazon moments where it's hugely scalable. But what was wrong with opening a shop in your local neighborhood and selling what you did and paying your rent from doing that? And so if every artist isn't trying to be scalable, shooting for the moon superstar, because there's not enough places, there's not everyone can, you know, go, I'm going to take on Google. Well, good luck. You know, it's like, I'm going to take on Ed Sheeran. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, good luck. Um, it's, it's not that easy. But if you said, wait a minute, I can actually do this and pay my rent. You know, I could either have that job or this job. Then you know, success can look differently. And so there truly is no right answer to it because the question itself in many ways is flawed because it depends who you're asking, what what they want to achieve yes. and where they are in life. You know, it's, mm. it's like asking a little kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? It, it, by the way, in my day, it was, you know, firefighter, astronaut. Apparently now it's influencer. But (laughs) it's unfair to ask a little kid what they want to be. And in some ways, it's unfair to ask somebody at the beginning of their career, what do you want to be? Because of course, they're going to, you know, say, I want to be a global superstar most, but not all. Like some are already quite comfortable where Mm -hmm. they are and wouldn't do what it takes. Because that's the other thing. I don't know that people quite grasp what it takes to be a global superstar. Um, uh, it it, it mm-hmm. is, it, you know, it's like saying, you, you know, you want to be an Olympic athlete or, you know, it, it is just, are you really yeah. that committed? Are you really going to do this or you just kind of like the sport? 10,000 hours is a lot of hours. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. and, and that's just to get to the basic proficiency. I think at that, there's yeah. a certain level where 10,000 is, is not even close. I would say the following, sort of having listened to both uh, Scott and Chris here, that if you would have asked me a year ago, a year and a half ago, what does success look like in the music industry a few years out, I pr- you probably would have heard me go on a rant about autonomy. Try and be autonomous, like financially. You, you don't have to be rich, but try and be autonomous financially, creatively, emotionally. Success is if you find yourself calling your own shots. That's at least how I would sort of generically define this success, regardless of where you are in your career. Mm. Fast forward to today. I'd probably offer up a different uh, suggestion, definitely not an answer, it's a suggestion. And I would lean away from autonomy and I would lean into community. But I think success in 2021 is if you feel connected. I'm so fed up sort of not meeting people, not feeling connected, being isolated emotionally, financially, physically. So I think success for music now is that on one part, being able to connect with other people. If I, it's a, we see so much comfort food, if you will, but we call it comfort music, just exploding because people want digital togetherness. We're isolated. We're afraid. There's a pandemic going on. There's wave after wave. 
success for me is if I can offer up a sense of community to others, but also be embraced by a community, feel that they're other like-minded. And there's no way to communicate that if you ask me other than through music, because hmm. it just, it gets you. You, you can't fear it's offended off. It just gets you. So I, that's what I would argue today. So success in 2021 in music, if, if you can feel and if you can share a sense of community, I'd say you're very successful. I love it. I love it. Words to live by. Okay. And I have one more question for you all. We invite all of our VIP guests on the Audio Talks podcast to choose a track for our special title playlist. So um, who'd like to jump in and nominate a track? So I would love to contribute a female singer. Her name is Anna Diaz, and she's obviously going to be singing in Swedish because that's what I would like to leave you with. Nice. And the track that I'd like to nominate is called and I'm going to say it in Swedish, it's called Vår Lilla Stad. It means our small community. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful. Well, my wife is Swedish, so I will, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell her about the track. She will be thrilled. And uh, Chris Cook, what is your track that's going to join our Hall of Fame on the Audio Talks playlist? Now, I'm going to admit that I outsourced this task. Um, <laughs> I, I, we have our own podcast called Setlist. And if anyone ever tunes into that, you will know that if you have a copyright question, or a legal question, or a record deals question, you come to Chris. And if you want yeah. to know what great new music you should go and listen to, you go to my colleague, Andy. So <laughs> I don't trust my musical <laughs> judgment, and I totally trust his. So I asked him earlier today, and he is currently rating another Anna, actually, Anna B. Savages. She's got a debut album out called The Common Turn. Title yes. track actually spelt slightly differently, interestingly. Released on City Slang uh, last month, I think, no, January. And he has put that at the top of the playlist for the CMU team. So I'm going to add that. I love it. Uh, there's a track on that album. I think it's called Baby Grand. It's just jaw-droppingly good. She's such a talent, based in Dublin as well, which is a, a bonus point from my point of view. And Scott Cohen, what's your choice for our lovely playlist? I'm going to give a track from an artist I, I, I worked with for, for several years. This guy's name is Dan Owen. And he's quite extraordinary. And he wrote a song called Stay Awake With Me Now. And he was on tour a couple of years ago and he got a message that his grandfather was very sick and about to die. And he couldn't go back to see him, but his grandmother was with him in the hospital. And the doctor came in the room and said, honestly, when, uh, when he goes to sleep tonight, I think, He's going to close his eyes and that's it. He's just going to drift away. So she crawled into bed with him that evening in the hospital bed and grabbed his hands and just said, stay awake with me. She didn't want him to go to sleep that night because he, they hadn't slept apart since they were married 50 years ago. And he wrote the song from the perspective of his grandmother called Stay Awake With Me. I highly recommend you listen to it. It's an absolutely beautiful track. Amazing. That's amazing. I look forward to that. Thank you, Scott. And uh, my own contribution is uh, Lockdown by Cypress Hill, because my goodness, we are all looking forward to music festivals and coming out of the lockdown and getting together and just hanging out. So um, we're all on the same page there. So listen, thank you all so much for joining us here on Audio Talks to talk about democratizing the music industry and so much more. Thank you, Scott Cohen, Chris Cook and Oscar Hoagland. And uh, listeners, don't forget to subscribe, comment, share, and generally get involved. We'll be back soon for some more fascinating audio talks. See you next time.